Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on, their house, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So that he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and away and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been answered, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Although there have been a number of very costly and even deadly searches that have been conducted throughout history. Uh, there's a man by the name of Steve Felton, and Steve Felton left a home, a girlfriend, steady job, and he bought this van and he moved to Loch Ness, France. And each day for about the last 30 years, he goes out and he looks for the Loch Ness Monster and sells little trinkets uh, related to the Loch Ness Monster. A few years ago, there was a short documentary that was done on him, and they were asking about kind of his, what many would perceive to be a crazy lifestyle. And he says this, The reason I sit here and try to solve this mystery is because that is what makes my heart sing. He says, My life gives me freedom adventure, unpredictability. It's a dream come true. In the summer of 2017, there was a 53-year-old man named Jeff Murphy, and he died in the uh, Superstition Mountains, or on Turkey Pen Peak, and he died after he accidentally stepped into a chute and fell down 500 feet to his death. And he was looking for a buried treasure. Uh, he was looking for a treasure that was uh, put there by a man named Forrest Fern. It was worth about $2 million, and it was filled with gold and jewels. And when Forrest Fern received a cancer diagnosis that was uncurable, he decided he was going to hide this treasure somewhere in the mountains. According to NPR's John Burnett, it was an ornate Romanesque box, 10 inches by 10 inches, and weighs about 40 pounds when loaded. He's only revealed that it was hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border at, the, at an elevation above 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine, a graveyard, or near any other structure. He wasn't even the first to die trying to find this treasure. Four people have died in total trying to find this treasure. There's another search that's been, uh, that people have made, and it's in Lake Toplitz in Austria. And this was used as a naval testing uh, area by the Nazis in World War II. And it was said that near the end of World War II, they took a bunch of treasure, gold, and $100 million in currency and threw it into this lake. And so people have been trying to find the gold for, uh, for decades, and at least seven people have died trying to find that gold. 500-plus adventurers are said to have died searching for a mythical lost mine called Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine, which is located somewhere in Arizona. It's named after a 19th-century immigrant named Jacob Waltz, who allegedly discovered this mine shaft, but he wouldn't tell anyone where it was located. Now, we think about these searches, and in a sense, these searches are crazy. I mean, to leave your home and to go and do these things and risk your life, it's crazy to do those things. But in another sense, you have to admire the dedication to sell all that you have, 
to leave your family behind and go and search for the Loch Ness Monster day after day after day for decades. The dedication required to devote your life to something that you believe is significant. Matthew 13, 45 to 46, Jesus said this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think in our culture, I think that we're losing a sense of purpose. We're losing this sense that there are things in our life that are worth sacrificing for. Things that are in our life that are worth searching out. Things that are costly, that even could be deadly, but are worthwhile. In 2011, there was an article in USA Today, and it analyzed a group of Americans who were called spiritually apathetic. They weren't atheists. They didn't believe that God you know, didn't exist. But their mindset was like, so what? They weren't really interested in spiritual things. The article pointed to the following statistics. They found that 44% of respondents told a Baylor University study that they spend no time seeking eternal wisdom. 19% said it's useless to, to search for meaning. 46% of respondents told Lifeway that they never wonder if they'll go to heaven. 28% told Lifeway that it's not a major priority in my life to find deeper purpose. 18% denied that God had a purpose or plan for everyone. As one professor concluded, the real dirty secret of religiosity in America is that there are so many people for whom spiritual interest thinking about ultimate questions is minimal. We live in a culture where the search for meaning has kind of been done away with. But in the passage that we're looking at today, we see a character, Cornelius, who's the complete opposite, who is seeking God with all of his heart. And his story is a little bit unique. It's a little bit interesting because Cornelius is a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles, they didn't get along all that well. Jews consider Gentiles to be unclean, so even to eat with someone who was a Gentile or to go into their household, it would make them unclean. So they tried to avoid Gentiles as much as possible. And yet somehow Cornelius decides that he wants to worship Israel's God. I mean, imagine if someone came into the doors of a church and everybody walked away from him and said, stay away from me, you're unclean, you're a sinner. Do you think that person would want to follow after Christ? Do you think that person would want to come back? But that's exactly what happens with Cornelius. He follows after Israel's God. He would have certainly been considered a second-class citizen by Jews. We also see that Cornelius is a man of influence and power. Another thing that would maybe prevent him from becoming a Christian and following Christ. He was a centurion, meaning that he was the governor over a hundred men. He would have been quite wealthy. Uh, centurions made about five times the amount that an average soldier would make. And yet in verse 2, he's described by four characteristics. He's described as being a devout man, that he feared God with all of his household, that he gave alms to the poor, and that he prayed or that he sought God continually. And so one day while he's praying, this angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him to go to this man named Simon Peter and to bring him back to his home. And so he does that. He sends two of his ser servants and a soldier. And then Peter comes and he come, finds all these people gathered together. All of Cornelius' relatives and his close friends are gathered together in a room. And at this point, 
Peter doesn't even know what's happening, why they've sent for him. He just sees all these people gathered to hear from him. And in verse 33, we see something that I find quite remarkable that Cornelius says in describing this scene. He says, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, can you picture this scene? All of the family gathered together, focused in on Peter, just waiting anxiously to hear what God would have to say to them. Peter goes on, he preaches the gospel to them. He shares about his ministry and what he's been called to do, and the response is overwhelming. They receive the Holy Spirit, they're baptized, they believe in Jesus Christ. This is astonishing to the Jews who are there with Peter, because the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit was a sign that the new age had come. And many Jews believe that in the New Age, when the Messiah came, what he would do was he would defeat the Gentiles, the other nations, and drive them out of Israel. And so the fact that a Gentile, someone from the other nations, would become a Christian, that they'd received the Holy Spirit would have been remarkable. That now they are part of the family of God as well. This certainly was hard for Peter to understand, and if it wasn't for God's work in his life and preparing him to meet Cornelius, he probably would have rejected him right away. But God shows a vision to him while Peter is praying, and this vision is of this great sheet, and Peter is hungry, and all these animals are on this sheet, and God says to Peter, rise, get up, get something to eat. And he sees these animals and sees that some of them are clean and some of them are unclean. And he's like, I don't think so. By no means, I've always avoided things that were unclean or common. I'm not going to do this. And yet God tells him, don't call something unclean or common that I've made clean. And God has to repeat that to him three times. Because he's so hesitant, he's like, I I'm not going to touch this. The Old Testament says I should stay away from these unclean things, and so I'm going to avoid these things. You can't make me do this. And yet God says, I've made these things clean. Peter doesn't know what this means. He's pondering what it means. And while he's still thinking about it, these servants appear, and it starts to make sense once again. And so he goes back to the home of Cornelius, and he freely associates with these Gentiles which in the Jewish mind, again, would have made him unclean. And he realizes that he's been wrong in his thinking. He realizes that he shouldn't call anyone common or unclean that God has made clean. He realizes that following God's will means doing things that maybe before he would have thought were crazy, before he would have thought were maybe even sinful. He came to realize that God is not a respecter of persons, that God shows no partiality. Verses 34 to 35, Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see, God is more interested in our hearts than he is in our heritage. God's more interested in our hearts than he is in our heritage. And I have two questions that I'd like for us to ponder today. The first question is, does God have our hearts? More specifically, does God have our hearts today? Some of us are here maybe 
We've never given our hearts to lie to, to Christ. Maybe our lives aren't marked by these characteristics that marked Cornelius' life, living a devout life, fearing God, seeking God in prayer. Maybe God has kind of always been on the sidelines of our life. Maybe he's never been the focus. We've never allowed him to come into our lives. We've never had a deep, vibrant, personal relationship with him. And maybe some of us, for the first time, we need to give our hearts over to God, to give him all that we are. And if that's you, I'd love to talk to you about that more after the service, how to enter into a relationship with Christ. Others of us were believers, but maybe we've been a Christian for some time, and maybe there was a time when God really had our hearts. Maybe there was a time when we would do anything God called us to do. Maybe there was a time when we looked forward to spending time with God in prayer. But those times have come and gone. And slowly our hearts have kind of drifted away from Christ, whereas we used to be listening to Christ and his heart, our hearts used to be his. Now we're listening more to the voices of this world than the voices of Christ. See, we live in a very distracted age. We live in an age where it's very easy to get sidetracked and follow other things rather than Christ. That allow other things to consume our hearts rather than for God to consume our hearts. There's a study that was done uh, a few years ago. And in this study, they had this clown riding on a unicycle. And he would kind of cross in front of these people who were walking. And then they asked people afterwards, did you find anything unusual as you were walking down the street? And nearly everyone said, yes, I saw this clown on the unicycle except for people who were on their cell phones. And they found that three out of four people that were on their cell phones had no idea that there was this clown on the unicycle that was right in front of them. And when they were told afterwards, they were amazed. And research were, researchers were amazed because they had looked right at this clown and it didn't register. They just kept walking and didn't even realize that it had happened. We live in a culture where it's easy to come to church to even do spiritual things, but not be focused on who God is. So we can read our Bibles, and as we're reading our Bible, we're just thinking about the things that we have to do during the day. We can come to church, and we're thinking about the Bills game, or what we're going to have for lunch, or what we're going to do the rest of the day. And we can lose our focus on the things that matter. You see, I, I don't believe that God ever asks us the question, did you give me your heart yesterday? Did you give me your heart in the past? He always asks us, will you give me your heart today? I mean, it's like that in any relationship. If you're married, do you ever say to your spouse, you remember that day when we got married, however many years ago? Remember that day? I really loved you on that day. We don't say that. We say, I love you, meaning I love you now. I love you today. God isn't interested in our heritage. He's interested in having our hearts today. There's a story that a pastor told years ago, and it was about two people that went to his church. It was a mother and her son. And they had a really close relationship. Um, they, the son grew up before there was all this social media and television. So they would just spend a lot of time reading and playing games and had this special relationship. And uh, when the son was about 22 years old, he found this woman that he wanted to marry, and he asked her to marry him. 
Um, but the issue was, it was during World War II, and there wasn't a lot of housing in the cities at that point. And so the mother had a two-story house, and she said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go on the second story, have an apartment there. You can have the four, first story, and you can get married and have a place to live. And she said, the only thing that I ask is that you would spend some time with me from time to time, because I know this is going to be different, and I'm going to miss the times that we share together. Well, they got married, they moved into the household, and at first, he spent a lot of time with her. Seeing her a few times a week, they would play games and read books and have that special relationship. But over time, he grew busy. And it got to a point where weeks and weeks would go by with barely even saying hello or glimpsing up the stairs. One day, it was his mother's birthday, and he went out to the store. He bought her this beautiful dress, and he gave it to her, and she opened the package. She looked at the dress, and she said, Oh, son, thank you. I appreciate so much what you've done. But he knew something was up, and he's like, Mother, you don't like it. She said, Oh, yes, I do. It's my color. Thank you. He said, Mother, I have the sales slip. I'm told we can return it. She said, No, it's a lovely dress. He said, Mother, you don't fool me. We've been together too long. What's wrong? The woman turned and opened her closet. She said, Son, I have enough dresses in there to last me a lifetime. I guess all I want to say is I don't want your dress. I want you. I believe the same thing is true in our relationship with God. God wants our hearts. He wants a relationship with us. He's not interested in our stuff. He's not interested in what happened in the past. He wants our hearts today. So that's the first question, does God have our hearts? So second question, do we have God's heart? Do we have the heart of God? Do we see people like God sees people? Because sometimes there's things that can get in our way of seeing people as God sees people. For Peter and the Jews, it was this kind of clean, unclean distinction that Gentiles, people that are not Jewish, are unclean. For us, it could be a number of things. It could be race, where we look down on one particular race. It could be gender, where we look down on one particular gender or consider one gender to be less than the other. It could be based upon intellect. People who maybe we don't perceive as, as smart as we are, we look down on those people. It could be based upon how much money we have or lack thereof. We could look down on people who are poor, or in the same way, we could look down on people who are rich. You know, we can think that they're entitled or that they're spendthrifts or whatever the case may be. We have all these different criteria where we can view people and consider people lesser or greater based upon these characteristics. But that's not the way God views people. God doesn't see those things. In 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16, Samuel is going to anoint the next king of Israel. And as he's going, he meets a man who by worldly standards you'd think he was going to be the next king. But Samuel learns that God doesn't see people as man sees people. 1 Samuel 16, 6-7 says, When they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Paul says in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If we're going to view people as God views people, we need to realize that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We need to realize that we can't call any person unclean or common whom Christ has made clean. Because if you encounter someone who's a believer in Jesus Christ, it means that Christ has shed his precious blood for that person. He has washed them. He has made them clean. And they're valuable in God's kingdom. And they're important in God's kingdom. Anyone who puts their faith in Christ is equal at the foot of the cross. We're all valuable to God. We can't look down on anyone for whom Christ shed his precious blood. Thomas Ayer once wrote this. We would all find more serenity in life if we could be done with comparisons and envy. God made us diverse, and in God's eyes at least, our diversity lacks hierarchy. As a friend says in her song, Weave, God makes of us a symphony, different instruments playing in harmony. Each part matters, but only if it's played according to its calling and isn't fighting with another part for control. We in the church make better music when we treasure our diversity rather than stifle it. So I ask you once again, does God have your heart? And do we have God's heart? God's more interested in our hearts than he is in our heritage. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as a church, as a people, that our hearts would be focused upon you. Lord, I pray that all of us would have a deep personal relationship with you because we know that that's what you long for. You're not interested primarily in anything other than our hearts. You want to know us. You want to have a relationship with us. Lord, I pray that we would see other people as you see people, that we would have your heart for other people, that we wouldn't see the things that the world often sees, things that divide us, but we would focus on the things that matter. The fact that we can't call anything unclean that you've made clean. Lord, I pray that we would live those truths out. That our hearts would ever be focused on you. And that we would have your, our heart, your heart as we share your love with others. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.